Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, November 13, 2022. Today's message title, Responding in Faith Over Fear, a study in the book of Nehemiah. Well, we're going to be uh, diving into the last part of Nehemiah chapter 6 today. And everybody said, woohoo, right? Uh, it's good. Uh, from here on out, we're going we're gonna to take a small break from Nehemiah. Uh, if you don't know, Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament about this man who responds to the call of God. He is in Babylon. They were taken as captives into Babylon and uh, they looked to Jerusalem and they saw that Jerusalem was in shambles. It didn't have walls. It didn't have protection. There was rampant poverty and, and, and despair going on there. And Nehemiah, sort of this politician in Babylon goes to restore the walls of Jerusalem. And, and here we actually get to the finished uh, product of the wall, but Nehemiah keeps going. But from here on out, we're going to take a break from Nehemiah. To, uh, next week, Andy and, and Becky are coming from the U.S. Andy's going to be preaching. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they've done. Uh, yeah, they're they're very dear to us. So Andy's going to be preaching a one-off sermon, and then the Sunday after that, can anybody guess what Sunday that is? The first of Advent. So, <laughs> like, yeah. I just can't believe that Christmas is here already. I don't know about you guys, but it feels like every year that passes, the year gets faster and faster and faster. And so Christmas is just around the corner. But here we're going to, here, here, as the walls of Jerusalem are, are getting finished and the enemies of Nehemiah, the nations around him have seen what's happening. They see this as a sort of last ditch effort to make their moves. This is the, the last week. Uh, last week, the enemies outside of the gate, they were trying to tempt Nehemiah to meet them somewhere so they could ambush him and, and perhaps kill him and stop the work um, or compromise with them. Hey, just, you know, be, you know, get married into our families. Let's make an alliance and let's compromise a little bit. But this week, the temptation comes from inside Jerusalem, from his fellow Jewish brothers. And so we read here in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 10 through 14 to start with. Um, and that is. I forgot to do the cooker. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, if you're looking for good baby names, just listen to this text, son of uh, Mehetabel, another one, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should a man sets his eye run away? And what man sets his eye could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And then we continue on to verse 14. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. And Tobiah and Sanballat, again, these are the guys outside of the city. These belong to different nations. They don't want Jerusalem to be restored. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah 
and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so here we are. So first in verse 10, we see, yeah. Yeah, yeah I already told people there's kids ministry. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was thinking you were handing me a drink with the, the little, um, huh? no, I have it right here. <laughs> so in verse 10, we see something wrong. So there's this character, Shemaiah, again, amazing name, who sets himself up as a prophet of God, uh, but he's confined to his home for some reason. And while others are working on the wall, they're trying to restore Jerusalem. This guy is confined to his home and given out prophecies left and right. Perhaps he's unwilling to join the mission of God. Perhaps he's in fear because he's looking at the nations around them. Um, although I think that's doubtful because in verse 13, we see that the purpose of his actions was here, that he, that he had been hired from the outside so that he could tell Nehemiah these news that the enemies outside the walls are going to come in and they're going to kill you to install fear in Nehemiah, possibly to stop him and possibly to intimidate the people that he's working with. So here you have a guy who refuses to join the work of God and now claims to speak on behalf of God some serious things about Nehemiah. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, had this. People come to you claiming to speak on behalf of God. And if this is your first time in church, you're like, no, this has not happened to me <laughs> at all. <laughs> Well, what should we take away from this? So we have this guy, Shemaiah. He claims to speak on behalf of God. He's installing fear into Nehemiah and the people working with him. But what should we take away from that? I think there are a few things that we could take away from that. Is Number one is discernment. Not all who claim to speak on behalf of God worry about God's opinion on these matters. <laughs> Has anybody had that interaction where it's like, well, that actually seems to go directly against what the Bible has to say about this stuff? And so I'm going to not take this advice. So some may be driven out of self-interest. Uh, we see this again and again and again. If you look at just the, the church and the Western world, how many scandals have to do with mismanagement of money, how many scandals have to do with inappropriate relationships. And so you have these people elevating themselves, sometimes bearing an actual title, like, like some people actually do this, like prophet so-and-so. It was as if I would walk in here and be like, hello, my name is Gunnar, Prophet Gunnar. You know? and, and so they give themselves these titles and they earn a lot of money because people believe that and give them money because they think, man, if I honor the prophet of God, then God surely will, will bless me. But some do it out of self-interest. And that's sometimes very obvious. Others, they rule by their flesh. And yet others, and when I say flesh, it's kind of Christianese. I realized that. Bless means just your innate desires, whatever you want for yourself, not necessarily what God would have you do. And then others, they look like sheep. And again, there's another Christianese word in there. <laughs> what are you talking about? Look like sheep. What does that matter about? Jesus says, my sheep know my name. They will hear my voice and follow me. And so there are others there who look like sheep, although they're being mainly to feed on other sheep instead of being there with them or being able to care for them. Jesus actually warned about this in, in Matthew 7, 15 through 17, when he says, be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. We know sheep's clothing, right? We're experts in sheep's clothing. It's called utla pesa. And if you look at the Greek that Jesus used, it's actually utla pesa. Yeah, uh, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And all of us city people say, I don't know. 
are they? <laughs> so uh, the implied answer being no, they are not. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So Nehemiah here, there's one thing that he needs. So he's got this guy, he's in, has got an elevated status within the city. And he's saying some things and claiming that these things are from God. He needs discernment to know, is this truly the will of God for me or simply someone claiming to speak for God to disturb the work of God? And if this is someone simply pretending, I don't know about you guys, but how often have we, have we grown up with this idea if someone says, oh my God, or grim and golded, what do we say? That's Christmas. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain, right? And it's like, yeah, you can make a case for that. I, I would say that's a good thing to not use the word, uh, the name of God flippantly. Um, but I think perhaps, well, not perhaps, definitely a worse way to take the name of God in vain is to do what Shemaiah is doing right here. Saying, hey, I am a man of God and I am speaking on behalf of God when he isn't. He is seeking his own vain pursuit He's seeking his own vain end, his own vain goal. In this case, he's being hired to be a false prophet. Who knew that was a booming business back in the day, right? After all, he is attaching the authority of God Almighty to this vain pursuit and his vain hopes. And Jesus said many would do this. In Matthew 24, he said many would do this. Um, Sorry, I didn't put it on the screen. But how do we discern if someone is using the authority of God to lead people astray? And this leads us to this point, which is our second point to take away from this, which is faithfulness to God. Our discernment should not take into account social standing or titles, but rather faithfulness to God. There are so many ways that people look at other people and see uh, how they would value them, right? The book of James in the New Testament talks about Man, if you're a church leader and you take all the people who have the money and you sit them up front and give them honor and blessings and all that type of stuff, and you don't take care of the people who are poor, that is not of God. And so here we notice it says about Shehemiah that he was confined to his home while everyone else was working on the wall. Yes, he may have spoken very confidently. He says it twice. The people outside the gates are coming to kill you. Yes, I say they're coming to kill you by night. In the later verses, we'll see that he's probably uh, a part of the nobles in the city. So he's esteemed. His opinions have weight to them for people around them because of his social standing, perhaps because of his wealth. So with nice titles, with nice property, with social standing, but Nehemiah goes in there and he hears some utter words on behalf of God. And what he uses to discern, is this of God or is is this not of God? Is not any of that the human ideas that we have about how trustworthy someone is because he notices even with his social standing, even with his confident way of speaking on behalf of God, Nehemiah must have noticed that this man is not seeking to be obedient to God. All of the other Jewish people are working on the wall and here you are confined to your cushy home, not doing anything. You're not staying obedient to the call to rebuild the city. And we see this again to be the case in the warning of Jesus. You will recognize them by their fruits. Isn't that what Jesus just said? What is the fruit? What is the fruit? Is it saying nice things? Or is it what comes out of your life? Fruit of the spirit, the Bible says, is love, 
joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And I'm forgetting one. Faithfulness, yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> Don't forget that one. Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to other people, faithfulness to our word. And so we see when Jesus is warning, hey, how do you recognize if someone is actually from me or from someone else? It's not by what they say. It's not by big words. It's not by titles. It's by this fruit that bears in their life. Even in his prophecy, we see this Shemaiah. He's given this advice to Nehemiah. He says, hey, you need to look out for your own good. You need to protect yourself. Run to the temple. And for most of us, it's like, all right, I don't know where the temple is, but that sounds like a good idea. I don't know what's wrong with that. And so we get to the third point, which is sticking with God's word. Um, yeah, when someone claims to speak for God, we should test it by the word of God. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like it's all too common nowadays to test how we respond to a promise or opinion of others simply by, well, how do I feel about this? Do I like this? If Nehemiah would have done that, he may have very well taken the advice of Shemaiah as, as good. After all, who doesn't like to be safe? Anybody in here when you're threatened with violence and, and death would be like, oh, that's, I'm just going to go about my day. We would all want to be safe, right? We would all feel that like urge to seek out safety. So you may miss this if you're not very familiar with the Bible, but the proposal to go into the temple uh, and to close the gates of the temple was actually uh, going against what God had commanded in the Old Testament. God had commanded that priests should only be in the temple. And as we've seen about Nehemiah's life, he's not a priest. He's basically a politician back in Babylon who just says yes to the word of God. And I, I, I want to continually remind us of that because I think we have this idea, right? That the people doing ministries, people like this guy, like with a microphone saying something on a Sunday, the idea of doing ministry in the Bible is that all of us do. Because you have an impact on people around you that I don't have. You can speak into people's lives that I can't do. You can be a light in the darkness where I can't be. And so all of us have this privilege and joy to represent Jesus in our daily lives. So remember, this is a whole book about a guy who's not a Levite. He's not a, he's not a priest. He's, he's a politician, right? As, as I jokingly say, the only good politician in your ministry. Now, priests, uh, priests were the ones who were supposed to go into the temple. They were supposed to be the ones who came and served God in the temple. In fact, in, in 2 Chronicles 25, you read a story about this guy, Uzziah, going into the temple and not taking into account the rules of God for the temple, and he gets uh, judgment for it. And well, here, the advice to Nehemiah is to do the same. Hey, do what I, Uzziah did in 2 Chronicles. Run into the temple, hide there. And this advice, it's tricky because it's using religious language, right? It's, he's saying, hide in the temple of God. He's claiming to speak on behalf of God. And again, why is this sermon so important? Because there's so many voices out there who would love to speak with the authority of God attached to their vain pursuits. And after all, this is very disguised in religious language. Like I remember I was, I was talking to a uh, 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 Mormon once. And uh, when we started the church, we were at our house and, and, uh, and he kept on saying over and over again, Mormons are Christians, Mormons are Christians. And, 
I would struggle with talking to him because we would be using all the same words. Do you believe you're saved by grace? Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, you go through all the, the Christianese words out there. Uh, but, and he would continue to say, and Mormons are Christians. And I would be like, so am I a Mormon? No, 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 no. Okay, what's going on here? Later, I find out that we may be using very same religious words, but there are whole different meanings to what that means to each and every one. So how many have been led astray by their own opinions, their own desires, their own plans, rather than the rules and instructions of God? How many more have been led astray by people with religious language, deep in religious tradition, even bearing religion, religious titles who have no regard for the word of God. He claims to be a prophet of God and yet he has no regard for the word of God. But the good news is that Nehemiah, this politician has the discernment to see that it is not the religious talk that matters, but rather faithfulness to God and comparing what he says to the word of God, faithfulness to the scriptures. Which leads us to the fourth point that we can learn from Shemaiah and his instructions to Nehemiah, which is the fruit. Nehemiah noticed the driving force out of this, uh, a force of this command was not, was fear and not faith. Um, again, if you think about the fruit of the spirit, love and joy, especially faithfulness, how much of that is compatible with fear? Can you be loving and fearful? Can you be joyful and fearful? Can you, can you have hope and be fearful? Or are you driven by fear? He notices he didn't have the faith in the word of God, but instead he aimed to have Nehemiah make a decision, not considering what God would want or what God is calling him to do, but rather to make a decision based in fear. And we went over some of this last week, but the idea is all throughout scripture. Like, like this promises to Timothy, who is, this is in the New Testament, Paul the apostle, he's writing to his protege in the faith. And he says this, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. It's an awesome verse. But you know, like what this does, it actually makes you, if you, if you want to discern what is driving you, is this from God or is it not? You can actually, this is one way. Is it driven by fear or is it driven by faith? And we see the Nehemiah says about Shehemiah, man, Shehemiah, there's so many ayahs in in this text, Uh, but he, he sees that the ultimate point of saying this is not to build faith, not to build hope, but rather to install fear. Because the, as you look throughout scripture, yeah, there's some good fear that the scriptures mentions. Um, fear in God, almost entirely they're talked about fearing God. And for most of us, we're like, I don't know if I like that. I, I like to think of God as, as a cloud. I come in to hug, but it, it's more, it's more than just fear. It's just, respect it's this realization that only his opinion really matters only god's opinion about things really matters over the opinions of others over the threat of others because in the end we stand before god and i realized this a long time ago and it was kind of shocked to me i realized 
one day I'm going to stand before God and all the voices that I used to live for and used to listen to with intimate detail and try to conform my life so that they would be happy so that I would get praise. None of those voices are going to be there. All the people I live for to, to, uh, to give me approval, to give me worth, none of them will be there with me when I stand before God. In the end, only one opinion matters, and that is what God thinks of my service and what I've done. And then we see Nehemiah do the exact opposite. We see that Nehemiah, he responds with faith over fear. He has seen God do incredible work so far. He has faced threats and they were revealed to be empty threats designed to stop the work of God. And he is focused on God's opinion and his truth above all else. But we see it even in verse 11 when he says, oh, I have it right there. Verse 11, when he says, but I, but I said, should, a, should such a man as I run away and what man as such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. Again, you can choose. I don't know how you interpret these words. Maybe you look at these words and you're like, man, Nehemiah was a very arrogant man. Who do you think I am? And like, I'm not going to go into the temple. Or you could see a man confident in God's ability rather than being arrogant. He doesn't fear the threats of his enemies who have been thwarted by the power of God. He fears violating God's will by going into the temple and getting judgment for it. And again, we should own some of this attitude. I don't know about you, uh, but how often this week did you say, should, so, should a man such as I steep to this level? No. Should a woman such as I? But the idea here is, hey, I'm a son of the king. Why would I join the work of an enemy? I'm a daughter of the king. Why should I join the work of the enemy? Should I run away from threats of hateful enemies when I know that God is standing right here with me? And he knows this is beneath him to do, not because he's arrogant, but rather because he realizes who is above him. Like that, that's one of the things that we need. All right, how can you be confident without becoming arrogant? That is because when you realize that only God's opinion matters, it's very difficult to become arrogant especially when you realize the whole key point of our faith is that he did all the work and you simply received, right? He came in, he cleaned you up. He died for your sins. How can you become arrogant when you do that? And yet, how can you be confident? Well, you remember that he is above everybody else. He refuses to be controlled by fear, but rather acts in accordance with his faith, recognizing who is with him. His eyes are not sent on temporary safety, but on eternal security. And you see this in verse 14, when we read, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So he overcomes this temptation to live in fear by reminding himself that he lives for the opinions and audience of one, and that is God. In essence, he says, I don't care what other people think. I care what God thinks. Uh, it was, I think it was Abraham Lincoln, right? He was in the, in the civil war. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. I'm getting my history. <laughs> um, he, he got, he got asked, you see this a lot with, with sports teams, right? You have 
Christians on both sides praying that their team wins. How does God decide that? Well, of course, he looked up how many pastors are in a praying. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, now, uh, Abraham Lincoln got, got asked this question. Do you think God is on your side in the Civil War? Do you think God is on your side? Again, he was fighting against slavery and it's like he could have been, of course, you know, and probably a stupid person like me would probably say that. And we wouldn't remember the quote because the quote was, of course, but he said this, I am less concerned if God is on my side and I'm more concerned about me being on God's side. I love that quote because at the center of that quote, it's not Abraham Lincoln. It was God. I want to be wherever he is. In essence, Nehemiah is doing the same. I don't care what other people think. I care what God thinks when I face him. But it is not enough for us to own simply the confidence that Nehemiah has because confidence has to be built on something. If you know the word confidence, it's made, I, I know I, I refer to this a lot, but it transformed my thinking about faith. It's confide, it's true Latin words, meaning with faith. And to have faith, to have confidence in someone or something, you need something to build it on. And Nehemiah's confidence is built on him knowing his scriptures and therefore knowing that God would never have sent a prophet to go against what he has already said. Now, we as a church, we hope to help you grow in understanding of the scriptures through the preaching of God's word like this. But before the end of the year, uh, we're gonna offer two Bible reading plans for the coming year. If, you, if you're unfamiliar with scriptures, we have, we have sort of a, a, a levels to this thing, depending on how much you wanna, or if you're comfortable with reading, we have uh, a sort of a easier Bible reading plan. And then we have a more advanced Bible reading plan that goes through the whole scriptures in a year. Um, and I really hope as this next year is coming up, as we go into December, how many of you make, uh, what do you call the, the pledge? New Year's resolutions. How, how many people still do that? We've all become disillusioned. <laughs> I've tried it so many times before and I know by February I'm going to fail. <laughs> uh, I, I, for some reason, I get giggly by the end of the year. I'm like, man, what do I want to do in the coming year? And, 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 and prayerful about it. But if you're praying about, okay, what do I want to do in the coming year? Again, I would love for you to have the confidence of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah's confidence is based on his experience with God as his knowledge of God. And I would love for you to think about, all right, which Bible reading plan can I do this year? You know, and one requires five minutes a day reading and thinking about it, seeking to apply it to your life. Uh, this year, we've, we've already started uh, some Bible studies as well um, and made easy materials for you to start your own uh, in the coming year. We hope to do more of that, both for women and men and mixed groups, but also in different languages. Uh, we're, we're not big, but it's very complicated <laughs> to try to do like, all right, so the Spanish speaking people, how are they going to do? How, how are the Farsi speaking people? How are the Russian speaking people going to grow in their understanding of scriptures? We're trying to work on that. And those groups are designed not only for you to know more about God, but rather hopefully walk out the Bible study is designed in such a way that at the end of the Bible study, you have to say, I will dot, 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 dot for the coming week. I will do something in light of this. I'm going to change something in light of what we just talked about in scripture. And our hope in that is not that you just become a nerd 
Like that's not our hope that you start to say words that normal people don't say in everyday language, that you start throwing out theological terms left and right, or that's right, right and left, uh, as, but rather that you wouldn't know God more. Because I, I genuinely, I'm like, man, how can I get better at giving people Jesus, pointing people to Jesus? Because I genuinely believe that this, this faith in this God is the best thing that this world has to offer. And life can be bitter at times and life can be sweet at times, but it will never be sweeter than Jesus. And it will never be so bitter that he is not enough. And I hope that you would have the confidence of Nehemiah, but you have that confidence. We say this so often, like we would love the knowledge and the theology of Paul the apostle, right? But we just don't want the suffering of Paul the apostle. We don't want the experience of Paul the apostle. We don't want the, the time and effort he put into knowing his scriptures. But our hope is that you would grow into knowing who God is, because I genuinely believe that in following him, there's this paradoxical reality that only when you surrender your life to him, do you find true and lasting joy. Because you'll never grow confident unless you see God for who he is. And when you see God for who he is, you both grow in confidence and humility because you realize that you could never earn your way to him. You could never be perfect as he is. And praise God, we, we thank God for the fact that we couldn't, but God could. He came down in Jesus to die for our sins, to wrap us in his righteousness. That's why the cross, this torturing device made by the Romans is a symbol of hope and joy because of what Christ has done. We sing regularly, turn your eyes upon Jesus. I turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's true. But I think for Nehemiah here, he's looked to God and then the threats of this world grew strangely dim in light of his glory. And then we finish off here at the very end with Nehemiah 6, 15 through 19. So the, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, <laughs> again, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. But they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in these days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah letters and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by an oath to him because they, he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, the son of Yehornan, <laughs> had, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they sp spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So he continued on and the wall was built remarkably in less than two months. You know, again, I, I know I've used this analogy before, but just depending on how much time it takes me to put Ikea furniture together, I can't imagine building a whole city wall in two months. Another reminder that God can do what seems impossible. And, and when the enemies saw the work completed, their mouths went silent, literally shut up. They like Nehemiah, they like Nehemiah had been taught this lesson. 
that your power, your opinions, your attempts to go against God does not hinder God if he has determined to do it. They had been taught that when you look to God to see and, and see what he does, he, the attempts of man is no, it, it, it can't be done. It, you can't come against what God has planned to do. They finally go to see God in his right lights. And their esteem of themselves and their ability was diminished. But again, so did Nehemiah, didn't he? I think Nehemiah had already experienced this. He had already seen God and his esteem of himself and his ability had been affected before this. He had seen God at work. So, so notice this interesting detail. You have Nehemiah on, on this side and you have uh, Tobiah and Shechaniah and the other guys on this side. They both see the amazing power of God. Nehemiah responds with joy. The others respond with fear. That's why I'm certain that Nehemiah doesn't stand there with arrogance when he says, should a man just as I do this? He's already seen God at work and his esteem of himself has fallen, but it is a joyful laying down of your own great view of yourself because you realize that God is so much greater. And I think that's honestly a problem in Iceland, isn't it? We, <laughs> I think the problem is we don't see how awesome God is. Because if God is only slightly more awesome than you, than men, if you just do some, read some self-help books and, and do some programs, maybe you will reach heaven. Maybe you'll be worthy enough, but God is in a whole different category than all of us, which sets him apart, which means we can't earn heaven. Heaven must come here. And this is not simply what God was doing back then. God is still revealing himself. He's still transforming lives. He's still doing the impossible. He's still changing the world. Again, just look at this Roman torturing device. Look at how odd it is that he who dying on a cross would transform a whole world without even having a podcast. <laughs> Think about this. There's no internet, no TV station, no crew not even book publishing, right? Let alone Kindle. Like, think about this. Think about how crazy it is that we're here and we're worshiping the God of Israel 2,000 years later. Think about how weird it is that a man dies on a Roman torturing device that was not simply designed to kill. There's way more effective ways to kill people. It was designed to humiliate you and send a message out. And yet here we are literally living in the, in the year 2022 after Christ, this man who died on a cross. Is that not impossible? Like, if you were to stand there with the Roman soldiers or with the political people of the day or with the religious leaders of Jerusalem and you somehow figured out to do a time machine, right? I feel like I'm like two months away. I'm working on it in my garage. I'll let you know how it goes. But no, you go back in time and you stand there and you stand among all these people. You have the Romans, best military of the day. You have the politicians with political sway and power. You have the religious elites who have got social standing and praise of the people and very much an influence in that society. And you stand there in the middle of all of them and say, hey, you know that dude on the middle cross? Yeah, no one's going to remember your names. The whole earth is going to revolve around that guy. 
how do you think you would, what do you think you would need to convince them that that's actually true? And yet here we stand. We sing songs about a cross. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the cross was not a popular symbol used by the Christians until everybody who had seen a crucifixion had died off. Because everybody knew cross was a disgusting thing to see in action. And one day, we will draw our final breath and we will see him face to face. Some of us, like Nehemiah, will respond in excitement when we see his face. And then others will respond in dread and fear because Nehemiah and those in his category realized God gave them everything and they lived for him. And then the others may realize that man, Jesus, offered forgiveness and mercy and grace, but they did not live for him. In fact, they lived as their own God. But in verses 17 through 19, we see it wasn't simply Shemaiah that was on the inside man working uh, with those against the work of God. It says, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and Tobiah's letters came to them. And in verse 19, you see this heartbreaking detail. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Can you imagine being Nehemiah here? So Tobiah and these guys outside the city have been mocking him for months. When mockery didn't work, they turned to threaten to raid the city to murder him. When that didn't work, they tried to spread rumors that he was starting a rebellion so that the king of Babylon would come in and make a sample out of Nehemiah and destroy the city. And now you have people from within your group actually telling you, Nehemiah, you may have just misjudged him. You may have, yeah, I, I think you're, you know, just give him a second chance. Like I, I, you got off on the wrong foot here. But we also see in verse 18, the reason for their actions. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and the son of Yehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. So when we read our Bibles, I'm guessing you, you read past that and be like, interesting, <laughs> and you move on. But what, what Nehemiah is trying to point out there is, in other words, they had to forge political alliances with the enemies of God and his people. They were looking out for their self-interest. They were more concerned with their momentary wealth, with pleasures of this world and status over the eternal joy found in serving God alone. And so he stands up against these elites of the day. And he's actually saying, you know what? I would rather be with the Jews working on the wall than be with uh, Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehonan. <laughs> these are like name drops back in the day. I know it doesn't sound like that to us, but these are name drops. These are elite people with a lot of power. How easy it would have been for Nehemiah to settle to be one of these people. But thank God that Nehemiah's eyes were not set on momentary comfort, but eternal joy. He was guided by the word of God, interested in the opinions of God over the opinions of the elites or over his momentary comfort. There are many things that we can apply to our lives as we go into this week. 
Number one, we need to grow in discernment as we compare claimed truths to revealed truths of God. But to do this, we must also value God's opinion over the opinions of man. We, We must get to know God through the study of his word in prayer and application of his word. That is, I'm gonna change my light in light of what God is calling me to do. I'm gonna trust that he is actually a good God and because he's God that he might actually have some insight knowledge that I don't know about. I keep saying that to my kids as they grow up. Like I keep saying over and over again, why does dad say no? Because you're trying to protect me or you know something like that. Like, okay, do you trust the dad's not just being mean? I'm not just like, well, you know, it's a Wednesday. I think I'll just say no to everything today. No, I'm actually looking out for your good. I see things that, you know, that you don't, you're, you're not worried about. Like when you want to eat candy for dinner, I see diabetes, you know, that type of stuff. Like I'm actually looking out for your good. But when we grow up, isn't this the exact struggle we have with God sometimes? Like, does he actually know better? Like, I don't know. This seems like a very logical decision. So as we see him at work, we must joyfully embrace the fall of our own esteem to run to him with joy, seeking not to be controlled by fear, but to live by faith. But those whole passages also warns us of a very serious thing that is prevalent in the church's day, that we as God's people should aim to bear the fruit that comes from faithfulness to God. It doesn't matter what we say. <laughs> People have done incredibly just bad things under the, the guise of religion when Jesus had nothing to say about any of these things. If you think about it, so many of our traditions have nothing to do with the Bibles. And the dangers of compromise that can harm God's people and inhabit the work of God and, and inhabit the work of the church when we, out of fear, compromise divine truth for secular acceptance, we see compromise. When, when the church measures success and failures by cultural standards or even business practices of the day, we compromise. When we import worldly expectations and approaches to our morality, our relationships, and our dealing with conflict, and we see compromise. Perhaps most importantly of all, when we live in fear of people rather than in the healthy fear in God and in faith in God, we see compromise. So as we go into this week, let me encourage you with a few things. As we go, as we have lunch with people, the whole idea is that you would get to know people in the church, that you would get connected with other believers. If you're not a part of a group that studies the word of God together and holds each other accountable, talk to me after the service if you wanna get plugged into that. As you go into this week, I pray that you would lift your head up from all, from the screen, from the computer, even to the mounted TV on the wall, a little bit higher. Lift your, lift your head up and remember eternity is coming. So many things fade and our need for them and, and what we live for and what's important right here and right now. It's not important in eternity. Lift your head up. Dive into the scriptures to have the scriptures equip you and change you and spend time with God in prayer. Right? We like me and Sal were talking about it this week. We've been married 12 years now. Crazy. (laughs) 
Well, it, it happened a while ago. It wasn't our anniversary or anything, so don't clap. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but over these 12 years, we grow into being the same person. We grow into having the both stupid sense of humor, the, you know, like everything sort of mixes, right? And what we do when we spend time with the word of God and in prayer, we start to look more like God. And only when you realize who is over you, will you realize that what is beneath you to partake in, as we saw in the life of Nehemiah. And lastly, if you're in here today, and if you have any doubt, when you breathe your last breath, when your heart beats for the last time, and you face God, and you're not sure if it's going to be a moment of joy or a moment of dread, I would love to talk with you. I would love for you to experience what I've gotten to experience. Not that life just is awesome all the time and it's comfortable all the time, but knowing who is with you is what gives you lasting peace. Talk with me after the service if you want to know more about that. Accept this amazing grace of God that washes away our sins and walk into this week knowing that Jesus is enough. Knowing that no matter what other people say or do, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you lose everything, you have everything in him. And so that's what we remind ourselves every week of the blood that was shed for us, of the body that was broken for us on the cross. And when we do that, we remember that ultimately this is what matters. This is what matters. He has loved us to let us go with joy into the darkness of winter, into the whistling wind, and let us serve him because he died for us on a cross. And just like food nourishes the body to keep us going a little bit longer, this, this fuel, this good news that Jesus came to pay our debt, to lay his life down, this will give us not only temporary comfort or temporary life, but eternal life. So if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've said, I want to follow Jesus in my life, he is my Lord, he's the boss, he's the one leading the way, I'm here to follow. And if you have placed your trust in Jesus as your savior, meaning you stand before God and you don't say, look at all the good stuff I did, Look at my limited cussing, you know, or something like that. Like whatever you're going to use to impress God. You just point to Jesus and say, he died for my sins. If you've done those two steps, then I want you to celebrate with us. If you're here and you're not ready to take that step, I hope, I hope that you do uh, someday because there's nothing better in life than this. Um, but if you're not ready to take that step today, wait, wait this one out. We're glad that you're here. Um, but this is as we remember the cross of Christ. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. Father, as we, as we think through Nehemiah and, and his view of you in the midst of opinions of man, I pray that we would learn a lesson from his life, that we would walk into this week, lifting our heads a little bit higher, reminding us that it's not about just what's happening here and now, that even in the best of days, nothing compares to you and in the worst of days, you are always enough. Father, may we lift our heads up as we look back and we remember the broken body of Jesus, as we remember the blood that was shed, as he laid down his life and took the punishment that I deserved. 
Father, we praise you as we go into this week, but also as we remember this amazing grace, this amazing love, may we seek to reflect that to others. May we serve others as you have served us. May we love others as you have loved us. May we forgive others as you have forgiven us. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. And we ask that you be with us as we continue to worship you as we go into this week. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with The Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland.